0: All right, well, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This evening, we're going to be beginning a seven-week series through the seven churches of Revelation. And we'll be looking at chapters 2 and 3 throughout our time in the weeks ahead. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the church at Ephesus and uh, the message that's given to that church from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, the book of Revelation is a fascinating book. If you ever have a chance to read it, a chance to study it, it's always interesting to get into it and see what God has to tell us through it. If I could give you a brief outline of the book to help you have a big picture of the book of Revelation, you can find an outline in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, John, the apostle John, uh, has, a, has a vision as Jesus appears to him and Jesus commands him to record a book and to send it off to seven churches throughout Asia Minor and uh, as John is given this he's told to write down three things in chapter 1 verse 19 to write down the things that he's seen to write down the things that are And to write down the things that will be. That's a good outline for Revelation. So, chapter one tells us about the things that he's seen, the vision that he's had as Jesus appears to him and gives him specific instructions. Uh, As we walk through our study in chapters 2 to 3, he's going to record the things that are the seven churches in Asia Minor that are literal local churches. And then in the rest of the book, you have chapters 4 to 22, where he talks about the things that will be. He talks about everything from the tribulation to the millennial kingdom to the uh, uh, eternal state. Um, And so a lot of times when you get to the book of Revelation, you think, well, let's skip ahead to the good part let 's go ahead and dig into the tribulation period let 's talk about the millennial kingdom let 's talk about the everlasting state and we can and we can easily skip over chapters two to three, but that's going to be the focus of our study together. Uh, the apostle John is the author he is also the author of the Gospel of John um, first and second and third the the letters of first, second and third John, and of course revelation here the 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 place that he's writing this letter from is the island of Patmos. It's about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the reason he is on that island writing this letter is because of persecution. He's been exiled. And it's always fascinating to me to consider where John is when he's writing this because the reason they placed him there is in order to silence him. But how many of you know you you can silence the messenger, but you can't silence the message? You can throw a, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ in prison, but you can't keep the good news of Jesus Christ in chains. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so in chapters 2 to 3, just to, uh, as we're going to walk through our text, we're going to take a look at these seven churches. And we've actually got a, a map that you could take a look at to just... Give you a a picture of of what churches we're looking at. Patmos, if you can see, is about 40 miles off the coast, and then you have the seven churches of Asia Minor. I want to give you just a, a few guiding principles as we walk through each of these churches. The first is this just a reminder, as we've already said, these are literal local churches. When John writes this, these are actual churches that he writes to and that Jesus has a message for concerning commendations, corrections, um, and so these are actual messages for each of these churches. The second guiding principle I'd like you to consider is each message given to each of the seven churches is relevant to the other churches. How do I know that? Well, because when you got your message from your church, for your church, you got to read the others, Wouldn't that be kind of interesting? Anybody have a bit curiosity? If Jesus were to give Twin Rivers a specific message, uh, corrections, commendations, but you also get to read about the other churches in Springfield. (laughs) You also get to read about the churches in Lane County and perhaps in other locations. And so the message was relevant to all of them. And then thirdly, the message given to each of the churches are relevant to every church in every generation. So Twin Rivers, we have something to take away from each of the messages given to these local, literal churches. And so as we walk through our text together, the first church we're going to take a look at is the church at Ephesus. And what is the message that Jesus has for the church of Ephesus, and how do we apply that to us here at Twin Rivers And so we find ourselves in chapter 2, we're going to be in the first seven verses together. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads this way, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so our focus this evening is just to take a look at the first message to the first church, the church at Ephesus. And as we walk through our text, if I could uh, just give you some headings that will guide us in our study today, it would be this. First, we're going to look at the introduction in verse 1. We'll then move into the commendations in verses 2 to 3. And then we'll take a look at the corrections given to the church in the remaining verses, verses 4 to 7. Uh, But we begin in verse 1, and we'll take a look at the introduction, the introduction to the message given to the church at Ephesus. And it reads this way, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. First we get to see in the introduction the recipient of the message. It's the angel at the church of Ephesus. Some of you may be wondering, Okay, so does every church have an angel Uh, As you take a look at the term angel, it comes from the Greek angelos, and it can refer to a heavenly messenger, like an angel, uh, a heavenly host, but it can also refer to a earthly messenger. And so when we're talking about these seven angels that Jesus, these seven stars uh, that represent these seven angels that Jesus is holding in his right hand that you read about in chapter 1, it's most likely referring to the pastors or the lead elders of the local church. And so when it says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, we're talking about the one who declares the word of the Lord to the congregation. The one who receives the message given from Jesus Christ and shares it with the congregation as he declares it to the people, he's a spokesperson for the Lord. And so, this says the the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, as you took a look at that map earlier, you can see where those seven cities are located. In each of those seven cities, there are seven churches. Now, if you were to take a look around town in Springfield, we've got a lot of churches anywhere from 10 and 20, I don't know, maybe even more, and so there are a lot of churches. Back in the first century, you had one city, you had one church, and so you had the church of Ephesus, you had the church of Pergamum, and so you have all these different churches in these cities. It would be one church, right? The church of Springfield, and so when we're talking about the message where it's given, it's the church in Ephesus, and we know the church in Ephesus because a letter was written to them by Paul, and we got that recorded in the Bible, the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, that's not the only book related to Ephesus. You got First and Second Timothy, written by Paul to Timothy, um, and of course you have Revelation. And so, as we kick off, we're talking about Ephesus, and Ephesus was a fascinating city. If you ever have a chance to read the history on it, it was a powerful city as much as it was Pagan. Uh, This was a city where there were many, well, a place where trade would take place, it was a place of influence, it was a place where, uh, it was a place of influence for economics, for politics, and for religion, but as much as it was powerful and influential, it was just as much pagan. In the city of Ephesus was a temple, the temple of Diana, and this thing was massive, Uh, This is where pagan worship was prevalent and so people would come from all over to come visit the temple, to sleep with the temple prostitutes and to buy idols that they could purchase there. And so it was a immoral city, it was a pagan city and in the midst of the darkness of the culture around them, Jesus brings forth the light through this church. It's a reminder to us, when you find a church in a dark culture around us, a culture where immorality is prevalent, a a place where we find the values of the world are greatly in contrast to the values of the word, I mean, the church in Ephesus could identify with such a culture. And how many of you know that as difficult as it may be to minister in a dark place like that, the darker the, the place, the brighter the light And so the light can shine brightest in dark places, and so the church in Ephesus was no different, our church as well, as we look around at the culture around us, can shine a bright light, uh, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, first in the introduction, we see the recipient, the angel, or the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Secondly, we get to see the author and how he's described If you ever read Revelation chapter 1, you'll get to see how Jesus appears in this vision to John the Apostle. And we get to see a a description of Jesus, which is magnificent, that's powerful. But as Jesus is described, as he is the one who is writing to each of these churches, a little bit of each detail from chapter 1 is written At the beginning. And for the church at Ephesus, what is repeated from chapter 1 is that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You might be asking the question what are these seven stars and what are these golden lampstands? Well, Jesus told us back in chapter 1, verse 20, if you go back just a verse, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so John in chapter one sees a vision and Jesus appears. The manner in which Jesus appears is holding in his right hand seven stars. There are other details as well that we can go into later as we walk through the churches. But not only does he hold seven stars in his right hand, but he's walking in the midst of seven lampstands, which are representative of these seven churches. And so you can just picture seven lampstands that are um, arranged in a circle, and you can just picture with Jesus with these seven stars in his hand examining each one. Taking a look at each one, he's present in regards to each one. This tells us something about Jesus and his relationship to the local church. Number one, it tells us that Jesus holds the the pastors of the local churches in the grip of his hand. I don't know about you, but if you're ever a teacher or preacher, that's a bit intimidating. The fact that how closely related Jesus is to his church is he has a tight grip on the pastor's who are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the local church. And what that means is that Jesus not only protects the pastor, but he has authority over the pastor. And don't ever forget this. This church doesn't belong to the pastor. The church doesn't belong to the elders of the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Those who have the opportunity and privilege to shepherd through the teaching and preaching of God's word are simply under shepherds who've been called to do the work that God has called us to do, as Ephesians 4.11 says, to go and equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so Jesus is closely related to his church, and he's got a firm grip on the pastors who will give an account to him. You know, this past Sunday, we were in James chapter 3, and if you were with us Sunday, James gave instructions to the church there he said hey uh, hey um, not let net let not many of you become teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly that should create an a, a sense of Caution, but also a sense of seriousness as one teaches and preaches and divides the word of God rightly. So God is is very much related to His church. Uh, uh, secondly, it tells us that He's walking among the church, and so what is He doing among the lampstands? Is He He's present among these local churches? Sometimes we think of Christ and we think of the invisible church, the universal church, and we know that's the bride of Christ, but We get to see the manifestation of the the universal church in the local church. And Jesus is very much involved with each local church. He's present. He's examining the churches. He has commendations for the churches. He has concerns for the churches. He has corrections that he's going to give the churches. And this should cause us to think for a moment, what if Jesus had a message for us? What if Jesus were to come to Twin Rivers, perhaps as a secret shopper? (laughs) He comes in and he starts looking around and he comes on a Sunday morning. He walks in and he sees us greeting one another. What would he say? He walks into the church service and as we sing praises to him, what feedback would he give as he took a look at our ministries of our church and our methods of our church what would jesus have to say in terms of the commendations corrections and concerns that he would give us what specific instructions would he give each one and so just in these introductory remarks we get to see that jesus is is very much involved in the local church That means he's not just involved in these seven local churches. He's involved in every local church throughout church history, including our own here at Twin Rivers. And so the question then comes to our mind then, how does this apply to us? And so I just want to give us a few takeaways and open it up for discussion. The first is this, be reminded that if God values the local church, so should we. If God values the local church enough to be present, enough to examine it, enough to give these seven churches feedback as, uh, as, as, as that which is very practical and relevant to them as it is to us. If God values the church, how much more should we? And if I could open it up for discussion, how might you counsel a fellow believers who values their relationship with Jesus but doesn't value their relationship with the local church? How would you counsel someone like that? Yeah, Steve? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of hearing like a sense of setting the example for them. Hey, this is what the church is in leading by example, coming alongside of other folks. Is that, yeah, 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 neat. Yeah, Harold. All the epistles are written to the local churches <laughs> <about those> <laughs> You take a look at the entirety of the New Testament and you take a look at all of the letters. They're written to specific, literal local churches. And so if you don't value the local church, you don't value God's word in regards to it, certainly. yeah. How else might you counsel someone? I'm sure you run into folks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so if you want to get close to Jesus, get close to... His church, yeah, his bride. Um, we need to Jesus yeah, he didn't do it. He didn't do community by himself. And so he had his disciples around him, and they had followers too. And, and we need to be using him and them as our examples. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus leads by example, you see the apostles, you see the disciples, they're investing in local churches, Paul's planting churches all throughout the known world at that time to the ends of the earth, and so you see the example set by Christ, and you see the example set by others, yeah, Annie? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so Annie is sharing just some benefits of being a part of a local church. When you are a Christian on your own, you have no sense of accountability. You also have no sense of encouragement when you're facing hard times, difficult times. The church is really a great place where you can come together with like-minded believers. You're in the world all week. You're in the workplace. I mean, whether it's their language, whether it's their worldview, whether it's their philosophy, it's just great to, to be blessed in the community of God's people. Come together during a Sunday gathering and then, and then head out. And uh be representatives of Christ during the week. Yeah. Did anyone else want to share? Yeah, Tasha. I'd say, man, you're just really missing out on um, sure. what we can do for each other. We support each other. We actually take care of each other when you have a need and then you invest in someone and they invest in you. Yeah. And then you have this opportunity to grow and experience public um, and growth Oh yeah. Yeah, you're missing out. There's so much uh, in the local church. Come check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just a, the first reminder, be reminded if God values the local church, so should we. Secondly, uh, be reminded that if, if God or Christ is involved in the local church, so should we. Christ is very much involved in his church. He, he has a firm grip on the pastor. He's interacting with the church. He's examining the churches. Um, I just wanted to list a few ways you can get involved in the local church. Get involved in local church by attending Sunday gatherings. How many of you know when the family comes together? That's the time to get involved, get to know uh, the people that when the family gets together. Secondly, get involved by joining a group. It's one thing to uh, get involved on a Sunday morning as everybody comes together. It's another thing to get involved in a more close-knit community where you can share prayer requests. You can bear one another's burdens. You can exercise the spiritual gifts like encouragement and come alongside of others in that context. It can be difficult to do that on a Sunday morning, so get involved by joining a group. Get involved by serving with your spiritual gifts. What a wonderful thing that God has provided each one of us at least something to contribute to the body, and the purpose of the spiritual gifts is in order to build up the body of Christ. And so when you're not serving, we're not being built up. It's not just the ministry of the word being shared on a Sunday morning. Like if I didn't show up, you know, you don't have the ministry of the word. But if you don't show up, you don't have the ministry God has gifted you. And like a someone who's limping because one of the members of the body isn't functioning, that's what the church can feel like and be like when we're not serving with our gifts. Fourthly, get involved by sharing your faith and inviting people. People to church, I mean, when you're involved in the local church, you want to go out being equipped with the truth of God's word and make it known, make Jesus famous and disciple others. And if they are going to come to church, what a blessing that is. Let me open up for discussion here. Uh, What are some common reasons why some Christians are not as involved as they should be in the local church? What are some reasons where we may not be as involved in the local church as we should be? What gets in the way of that? Yeah, Adam. Sure, sports, um, activities, uh, busy schedules, certainly. Anything else? What else gets in the way of just being involved? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just being lazy. That's that is true. Sometimes you're just like I'm not I'm not getting out of bed today, you know? I'm just sticking around home, certainly. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? Yeah. Common, yeah. Yeah. So plenty of distractions. Entertainment, the pursuit of pleasure, hedonism. I mean, there's so much in the world that we could be doing rather than being involved in the local church and the mission that he's called us to, to go make disciples, to baptize, to teach, knowing that he's with us everywhere. Certainly. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Jen. Burnout. Certainly. Yeah. Oh, sure. And... You've done it all, you're working hard, sometimes 20% of the church does 80% of the work, you know, and I mean, you feel it on your shoulders, and then you're in a new season, you're like, I'm ready to pass the baton, (laughs) let's get going, folks, and so burnout is a, a real hindrance, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's really where your heart's at, what you really love. And if, you, if, if your love for God isn't where it should be, other priorities get in the way. And it exposes truly what we really love. We say we love God, but um, our behavior doesn't always reflect that. Yeah. So be reminded that if God values the local church, so should we. Be reminded that if God is involved in the local church, so should we. And then lastly, be reminded that if God takes our worship seriously in the local church, so should we. And I wanted to open it up for discussion one more time here. How do you prepare your heart to hear from Jesus in a devotional time, in a Bible study on a Sunday morning? Knowing that we should take worship seriously, how do you properly prepare your heart? What advice would you give someone for how to come to worship, come to the time of devotion, um, and be all in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so just on the way to church, have a conversation with the Lord and prepare your heart, get in the right mindset. Lord, I'm ready to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. If you, the kids are yelling in the back, quiet down. I'm trying to get ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So beginning with confession of sin and as you approach the Lord saying, God, if there's any wicked way in me, you know, lead me in the way of the everlasting. If I need to repent of anything, if my mind is not in the right place, let me just get right with you first. Yeah, great, Jensen. Uh, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get to church late. Just come on time. Yeah. Find a place so you have enough time to to prepare. Yeah. Anyone else want to share? How do you get right before the Lord? Yeah. Well, first of all, if Charlie shows up five minutes early, I want to hire Charlie. Secondly, in this church, we do verse by verse typically, so you can have a pretty good idea of where you're going to be on Sunday, so maybe reading that in the morning. Sure. Sure, so you can read some of the scriptures ahead of time and start letting it uh, ruminate in your heart and your mind and then you, you come already and prepared to receive uh, what the Lord has for you as he nourishes you with, with his word. Yeah really good and so uh, we began with the introduction and we talked about how Jesus is intimately involved in his church he he's got a firm grip on the pastors he's he's interacting he's examining he's got an inspection report for each one and then he goes into the commendations in verses two to three he begins in verse two and says I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. He begins, he says, I know. What he's saying here is, I know the good that you do. You know, sometimes it's helpful to be reminded of that when you're serving in the ministries of the local church because sometimes you wonder if your ministry is actually making an impact or making a difference. You wonder sometimes if what God has called you to do and how God's called you to serve with your spiritual gifts is actually effective in accomplishing the commission that He's given us to go and to make disciples. And what we get to read about here is He commends the good that they're doing, and it's a reminder. Whether or not people pat you on the back or not, Jesus sees your ministry. Jesus sees the ministries of Twin Rivers Church and that which is commendable. And he knows the good that they do and he knows the good that you do. And that should be encouraging to us. Because in the end, what really matters is not the pat on the back. What matters is if God is being glorified. If his kingdom of light is pressing against the kingdom of darkness and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth as it should. If we as the church are being equipped for the work of ministry, not just inside of the church, serving with our gifts, building up the body of Christ, but as we edify the body, that we would evangelize the lost. And so, we're reminded here that God sees the good that the local church does. He sees the ministries that you serve in, and he refers to them here as indeed commendable. He commends what good in the church. First, he commends their work. He says, he, he, I know your... When we're talking about work, we're talking about good deeds. He knows the ministries of the church and how effective this church is. church at Ephesus was dynamic. Church at Ephesus, in Ephesus was, uh, was effective. If you go back 30, 30 years when the church was planted in Acts chapter 19, if you want to know how effective the church of Ephesus was, it says, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. The ministry. Coming out of the church of Ephesus was, was so dynamic, was so effective, that the gospel was being pressed all throughout the region. I mean, that's pretty commendable, and he commends those good deeds. Now, when we go back to the letter of Ephesians written by Paul, he writes in chapter 2, verse 8, For it is by grace ye have been saved, the unmerited favor of God. Uh, it, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this not of yourselves is the gift of God Not of works lest any man should boast And what we're reminded there Is that we are saved by grace But then you go to the next verse You see that we are saved for good works Works don't save you But works will be the fruit of godly living That flow out of the grace that you have received A church Who has received the unmerited favor of God that is not dependent on what they've done but is dependent fully on the heart of God when they reflect on the goodness and the graciousness and the mercies of God, it motivates our hearts, it moves our hearts to, according to verse 10, be his workmanship. The word workmanship there in the Greek literally means to be his masterpiece. We don't bring glory to us, but as we are his workmanship we reflect glory unto him and it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are a recipient of the amazing grace of God, how much more should we be motivated to serve with our gifts, to edify the body, to evangelize the lost, to be the people of God he's called us to be. And Jesus finds this commendable. He says, I know your work. And then he says, I know your labor. Well, that sounds about the same, right? Just using synonyms here, right? Work and labor. But in the Greek, the, the word The term labor there speaks of an intensity of work. It speaks of working to the point of exhaustion. This is a good word for us right here. Because we get exhausted sometimes. We get burnt out sometimes. We get tired as we're, we're, we've got all these things we're trying to balance. We've got families. We've got marriages. We've got all these different things. And, And yet the church here is being commended, not just for their good deeds, but for their for their work ethic, they're not lazy. Not only are they not lazy, they are motivated to go about the work of declaring the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth to the point of exhaustion. Why? Because they are recipients of God's amazing grace, his unmerited favor and christ has given them his life he's given us his life he shed his blood on our behalf and what do we have but to give him our life in service to him and so lord if you want me to work not just work if you want me to labor to the point of exhaustion jesus says that is commendable that is encouraging so as you work hard be reminded god sees you Sometimes you get burnt out and sometimes the weight isn't distributed in terms of the the calling that God has on the whole church to use their gifts that God has called them to do accordingly. But he commends them for their work and for their labor. He continues on, your patience in that you can bear with those who are evil. And then in verse 3, you have persevered and have patience. And so, once again, he highlights the fact of their perseverance and patience. What he's talking about there is is enduring under intense hardship. John, why is he on the island of Patmos? Persecution. He's there to be silenced. And so, this church is also facing the persecution, the tribulation, and the hardship. But they persevere. They have endured. And so, Jesus says, that's commendable. That's commendable as, as, as you continue to work, as you continue to labor, as you continue to serve the Lord for the glory of God. And you, even in the face of persecution, feeling the pressures of being attacked for your faith, ridiculed for your faith. You continue to press on, press forward, and you exhibit perseverance and patience. I don't know about you, it's easier to talk about than to be under that pressure. Can't imagine, you've got countries around the world who are experiencing those pressures right now and sometimes you think about it as you hear about what's going on and say, how am I going to keep the faith? Well, the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will enable you to endure anything all for the glory of God. And he commends them for that. This is not just to pat them on the back and say, good job, Ephesus, but it's to encourage them to give glory to the Lord, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works. And so, know your labor, your patience. And then it says, He He commends them for their doctrinal discernment. He says, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And so, there is when immorality comes into the the local church it needs to be dealt with accordingly you read scriptures like Matthew 18 if you have something against a brother or sister in Christ there is a process that you go through you speak to them directly you have a group of people that you go to if they don't respond and then there's a certain point within that journey where you bring it before the church and the reason you uh, ask them to not be a part of the church is is for the sake that they would return And that they would be restored. And so the purpose is always restoration. As you call on a brother or sister in Christ to turn from their sin. To repent. To to turn back to Christ. And to experience what he's called you to. And so uh, they don't bear with those who are evil. They don't put up with evil. And they don't put up with error when it comes to theology or doctrine it says you've tested those who say they are apostles and they are not and they found them liars so folks come to the church and say hey I got a word for you guys today and I share some teaching with your church and this is a little different back then in the first century and you say well let me chat with you for a moment and they start denying the deity or the humanity of Christ and you say whoa buddy you're definitely not an apostle you sound more like a false teacher, and uh, the scriptures have very serious things to say about false teachers. And so they've they found out the false apostles, the false teachers, and, they, and they've called them out to be liars. Get out. We are going to preserve the integrity of doctrinal purity and the integrity of the purity of the morality within the local church. And so it says, and you have persevered, verse 3, have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You continue to press on. Shall mount up on wing. Those who wait on the Lord shall mount upon wings like eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary, run and not faint. Even though they're being persecuted, even though they're feeling the pressures of that around them, they are not weary. They're trusting in the Lord and the strength that he Provides. And so verses 2 to 3, we get to read about the commendation, the commendation. So how does that apply to us? And so I wanted to ask us for a moment to just consider whether Jesus would commend to Rivers and the individual ministries that we serve in or correct us as individuals or as the church when it comes to work and labor, perseverance and patience and doctrinal discernment so i just want you to consider for a moment when it comes to these areas this is what god commends the church for work good deeds a dynamic church that is effective not just in teaching and preaching the word of god but equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And as we huddle on Sunday, we break out into the community on Monday in the workplace, wherever we are in our circles of influence, and you get to see the gospel, the light of the gospel push against the darkness as the kingdom of God rules and reigns in the hearts of men and over all things in relationship to the gospel going out. And so there are areas that we would say, hey, there are some things we're doing in terms of outreach, in terms of, uh, on, I think September 23rd, we've got a, another outreach where we're going to go out to, to Glenwood and Frank uh, uh, leads that, one of our deacons. And so that's a great opportunity to, to, to reach out into our community. To not just care for the spiritual needs of those out there, but for their physical needs. Give them some breakfast and say, we don't want to just fill your belly. We also want to point you to the truth of the good news of Christ. We want to rescue you from the fire of hell. We want to lead you on the path that leads to everlasting life. But we could also say, hey, there's ways that we can grow. We can, uh, not just individually as a church, but individually we can say, hey, there's some people in my circle that, that i haven't prayed for that i haven't i haven't reached out to in my neighborhood right now there are some people i don't even know their name so why should i care about them or pray for them or share the gospel with them because i haven't even met them and so there's a reminder hey maybe that's a challenge for me as jesus gives an inspection report to me if jesus came to you and said hey here's the inspection report how's your work how's your labor you work for the lord in the glory of the kingdom to the point of exhaustion or do you say you know I've I, I give in too early you know how much time do you give to the Lord a week in service to him you say oh I'm here on Sunday and I I serve in the children's ministry or I serve in this ministry if Christ has given his life for us If Christ has shed his blood on the cross for us and we've been called to give our lives to him in service to him, should we give the Lord more than an hour a week? Should we not serve him in the ways that he's called us to? And so it's just a challenge to each one of us to say, okay, what, what different things can we do if God gave me an inspection report, that like gave our church an inspection report as we persevere, if ever we feel the pressures from the culture around us, and the darkness that seems uh, to be present sometimes, and and how do we Pursue um, moral purity and, and doctrinal consistency and theological truth. And so uh, that's the the first um, that's the first application. And then secondly, if I could ask yes, if I move, should I just grab a mic? Uh, second question I or a question I wanted to ask is, is what can we do to make sure those who serve faithfully in the different ministries of our church Uh, Feel appreciated, especially those who have been a blessing to you and your family You know, God commends the good deeds of the church and sometimes we don't always feel appreciated Um, Is there anything we can do in the local church to help with that? You know, when you when someone ministers to you and like uh, They're leading worship on a sunday morning and you feel incredibly blessed How can you say man not to pat them on the back but to give god the glory? uh, What can you do there? Yeah. So give them a a thank you note, pass over a thank you note and say, you really ministered to me. And you're giving God the glory, right? I mean, it's a, a great blessing. A thank you note goes a long ways. Yeah, anything else you can do to encourage someone as they minister with their gifts? Oh, yeah yeah sure sure yeah and so just telling them what, what a difference it's made I think a testimony goes a long ways I mean sometimes we minister to folks uh Just doing what God's called us to do. We're not looking for a pat on the back. We're not looking to receive any glory. We want to give it all back to the Lord. But it's encouraging to hear, God used me, a flawed human being, saved by the amazing grace of God, to encourage you. He's given me the gift to be able to sing or the ability to encourage. He's he's given me a testimony in the midst of the dark circumstances I'm in the difficulties I'm in. I could I've never dreamed how the Lord could have used my testimony and and the hardships that I've gone through to encourage someone else and that's a blessing when someone comes to you and say man that testimony how you worship the Lord in the face of hardship really encouraged me and I, I don't know about you but as, as as I get to serve with the gifts God's given me it's just great to hear how God is drawing people closer to him continuing to make disciples and doing what God has called us to do and so we're reminded of the commendation and then as we finish up in uh, verses four to seven we see the correction the correction you say well this sounds like a great church it's a dynamic church I mean they're effective Uh, they've got good deeds they're hard workers they're not lazy they work to the point of exhaustion I mean they are quite effective they're doctrinally sound dynamic doctrinally sound but then Jesus says they're in decline they're in decline because while they have their priorities and they have the things of first importance the most important thing is what they lack And verse 4 tells us nevertheless I have this against you that's scary words If if you have something against me, okay, that's one thing, you know, I can perhaps deal with it. My wife, you know, she might have something against me from time to time, Um, but when it comes to God, the God God of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. Because if you're on the wrong side of God, you're on the wrong side of history. And ultimately, you know how everything ends. I want to be on the side of God. And so he tells this church, I I have this against you. And he says this, you have left your first love. That's hard to hear. Especially a church who's saying, I'm dynamic and we are effective. We're edify. We're, we're preaching the word. We're theologically sound. We're, we're, we're building on the foundation. You come to our church, you're going to hear God's word taught, expositionally, right? We're, gonna, we're going to be effective in terms of teaching the preaching. The word. We're dynamic in the sense that we, we're seeing the body edified. We're seeing evangelism takes pl- take place. But there are times when we're simply going through the motions. There are times when you come to church and as you're worshiping the Lord, singing the lyrics, but you don't mean it from the heart. Somewhere along the way, your love and devotion for God began to grow cold. Unfortunately, this happens in marriages sometimes. Your love and devotion to one another grows cold. The way that you... You longed and loved one another in the past, is is not always there. And sometimes that can happen first. You remember when you were first Christian? Man, you realized what a great sinner you were and how deserving of an eternity without God and His people forever you were. And you take a look at your heart and you say, Man, I'm desperate for Jesus. And then you hear about His amazing grace. That the only thing that will get you into heaven is nothing you can do, but only his amazing grace. And then you receive it, and you have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. In his sight, you are declared righteous. I mean, what good news is that? And it's so good, you want to share it. You want to share it with others, because of what God's done to you. He's forgiven your sins. You want to make him known to the ends of the earth. You remember the excitement you had when you invited somebody to church and then uh, uh, they got saved? <laughs> or you had a conversation, you sat down with them and you say, Lord, I don't know what to say to them in terms of the gospel. And you're having dinner with them and the Lord just really tugging your heart. And then you have an opportunity to share your faith and, and God's actually working in their heart. And you're like, Lord, you're using me. You know that excitement? Well, somewhere along the way, the love grows cold and so i just wanted to share a few reasons why love can grow cold first love can grow cold when your priorities become misplaced your priorities become misplaced you know our love for god and our devotion to him should be our number one priority what motivates us to 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 teach truth and love well is the fact that we love God the reason we study his word is not just to know more of the Bible but to know more of God and so if I get done with God's word and studying it in devotional time or coming to church on Sunday I've wasted my time right like like if you're no closer to God when you began reading it even though you're reading the Bible through for a year the question is is the Bible getting through you is Jesus changing and transforming your life are you different today because of how God is moving in your heart and in your mind and I always think of seminary when I when I uh, think of a love growing cold like this because um, at the seminary I went to they actually had a spiritual formation program and the reason they had the spiritual formation program is because uh, in the past they had this all these uh, pastors who were or looking to be pastors or uh, and were wanting to be trained theologically and sometimes there's the joke that goes around you know it's not seminary it's cemetery right because that's where you go to 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 die in terms of your faith sometimes and your love and devotion to God. But unfortunately, folks were getting to know the Bible, but they stopped coming to church because they thought they knew the Bible more than the preacher on Sunday. And so folks stopped coming to church, so they had to create the spiritual formation program to say, listen, you guys need to get together. You are still in the process of sanctification. And what a scary thing pride is when you think you know more than The pastor on Sunday morning and uh, knowledge can cause a lot of pride in you. And so, misplaced priorities, love can grow cold. Um, Secondly, love can grow cold because of small compromises and a lack of obedience. John 14 15, what did Jesus say? If you love me, obey my commands. Okay, what's one of his commands? Go and make disciples. So, the question I have to ask myself is I say I love God, but am I making disciples? Well, Matthew 28 19 to 20 tells us how do you make disciples? Evangelism and edification, reaching the lost, talking to Jesus about, talking about Jesus in our circles of influence. Um, And as we evangelize the lost, we draw them into the church, they get baptized, they get saved, and then they join the church, they get taught, and Jesus is with them to the end of the age. That's discipleship, getting the word of God in them, and it's transforming their hearts and minds moment by moment and day by day. Thirdly, love can grow cold when the next generation loses the fervor of the previous generation. When this is written 30 years prior, a new generation has come. And so by the time we get revelation written, you've got a new generation of Christians where the love and devotion was not as fervent, and and they were not as passionate as they were when the church was first planted. And it just reminds us of the importance of discipling the next generation. It's a reminder that it only takes one generation for the church to go extinct, if we're not pouring into our youth, if we're not pouring into our children's ministries, what ends up happening 30 years from now, we've got nothing left. And so love can grow cold. I've got a, I've got a list of ways, ways that love can grow cold. First, when my delight in the Lord is no longer as great as my delight in someone else, I have lost my first love. When my soul does not long for times of rich fellowship in God's word or in prayer, I've lost my first love. When I claim to be only human and easily given to those things I know displease the Lord, I, I have lost my first love. When I do not willingly and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others, I have lost my first love. When I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of his love, I have lost my first love When I inwardly strive for the acclaim of the world rather than the approval of the Lord I have lost my first love when I fail to make Christ or his words known because I fear rejection I've lost my first love when I refuse to give up an activity which I know is offending a weaker brother I have lost my first love when I become complacent in sinful conditions around me I've lost my first love. And then lastly, when I am unable to forgive another for offending me, I have lost my first love. But not only does he say, I have this against you, thanks be to God, he says, I've got you a solution too. Aren't you thankful? He's got a prescription, because when I take a look at that list, I think to myself, okay, I, I'm, I might be in that category. When I think of the ways my love and devotion has faded and grown cold, Lord, tell me what the solution is. As we continue to read three R's, remember, repent, and repeat first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Think back. To when you first come to Christ and the excitement and the joy that filled your heart, knowing that you passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Remember the excitement that came as you shared your faith and you wanted to let the whole world know who Jesus is and what he can do for them. Remember. Secondly, repent. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind that will change lead to a change of direction. And so it says in, in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Repeat. When it says do the first works, it doesn't say go back to your old feelings. Sometimes you say, well, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel you know, excited to to pray or to worship or to get up and go to church. Well, you don't go back to your feelings. You go back to the authority of the Word of God and the commands of Scripture. And we show our love for God not simply based on how we feel, but by obedience. Now, certainly, emotion is part of it. We were created that way. Um, um, someone once said said uh, in terms of marriage, marriage without uh, commitment is a mockery. But marriage. Uh, without feeling is a drudgery and so we're reminded that when it comes to um, when it comes to marriage just as it comes to our love and devotion to the Lord you should have you should have a a right desire and longing for God and as you repeat and go back to the things you first did God begins to change your heart you know if if you're a husband or wife and and you've And you take a look back and and you're remembering back when you were first married or when you were pursuing your wife as a husband. You say, wow, I remember back then when I would pursue her i would compliment her and so this husband one day decides okay i'm going to remember i'm going to repent and i'm going to repeat that wife if she he doesn't tell her she's going to think he's up to something no good like why are you treating me this way you know as believers Christians, go back to 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 what it first means the foundational principles what it means to be a follower of christ pray again you don't feel like it pray get on your knees Let the posture of your heart be reflected in the posture of prayer that you have before the Lord. Get back in the word. Go back to the foundational things. You know, a lot of times folks have a lot of problems and and, and, and they say, what's the solution? Ultimately, it's just going back to the foundational things. Pray, get in the word. If you'll do it every day, it goes such a long ways. As you return back to your first love, it will be a great blessing. And then it says in verse Um, 5 repent for the of the first work or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Who is the one who starts churches and who is the one who ends the life cycle of a church? It's Jesus and Jesus says if you don't repent if you don't change your lampstand is no longer going to shine if you research this church today You won't find this one or any of the seven churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. The city of Ephesus is just a pile of rubble. The last time there was a church there was the 14th century. The light has gone out. It's a reminder to be faithful, to remember, to repent, and to repeat, and serve the Lord in what he's called us to do originally. Verse 6, but this I have but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, at least you got this going for you. Return to your, 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 uh, your love and your devotion to the Lord but also continue to maintain doctrinal purity. Nicolaitans possibly, we don't know exactly, perhaps they were mixing the gospel with works-based theology or uh, immoral behavior and uh, saying that it was fine justifying it. Verse seven says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to this churches. In other words, this is the invitation for Twin Rivers and the invitation of the individuals who make it up Uh, Open up your spiritual ears to hear the truth that God has for us. Let us not be the church whose light goes out. Let us pour into the next generation. Let's remember, let's repent, and let's repeat. Go back to those foundational things. Be reminded that we have been called to be equipped to go and evangelize the lost and edify the believer and do all that God has called us to do. Two takeaways as We close together first. Remember, uh, once again, as I said earlier, it only takes one generation for the church to go extinct. Psalm 78 4 says, We will tell the next generation about the Lord's praiseworthy acts, about his strength and the amazing things that he has done. Uh, I'd like to close it with this this discussion question and we'll wrap it up together how can we practically pass on to the next generation the kind of love and devotion for God that will continue to turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ how can we pass on to the next generation that kind of love and devotion that will literally turn the world upside down for Christ So what I'm hearing is be available and say here I am Lord what do you want me to do I'll do what I need to yeah yeah that's great anything else what can we do to reach the next generation so our light does not go out Harold Yeah. so I'm yeah yeah so Harold is saying lead by example if you set the passion and you show your love and devotion to the Lord that's the best thing you can do lead by example he was, he was saying if you didn't hear if, if I tell my wife hey uh, I love you and everything I'll see you next week you know it's not it's not gonna work out well I don't know if I summed that up well uh, yeah Jared yeah 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 so jared's saying just going back to the fundamentals of the faith stick to the the gospel it's simple and and let them know what the good news is it goes a long ways yeah anyone else wanted to share yeah steve So Steve's, Steve is saying, your faith's got to be genuine. You can't just go through the motions. You've got to, once again, lead by example. It goes a long ways. And the, the, the next generation can, can sense when we're not being authentic, when we're not being real. Uh, the Lord changes, transforms hearts. Jason's saying include the next generation in the services with their spiritual gifts as they're serving the Lord, uh, the next generation can go far away. Can i finish with Charlie. Charlie, what do you want to say? Yeah, so... Yes, the see us, yeah, So Charlie is saying, if you have a chance to read to a kid, read to him a a Christian book. Let him know about Jesus that way. All right, let me close us in prayer as we wrap up. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful this evening to meet together and to know that this is your church, that you are intimately involved with it, That, Father, your desire is that we would um, submit to your will in accordance with your word in all things, and so we pray that that would be our priority. But, Lord, as we pursue doctrinal truth and doctrinal purity and moral uh, purity, as, as we seek to be a dynamic church that is effective inside the body, edifying the church and outside of the church, evangelizing the lost, we pray that we would not lose our first love. Father, we pray that our hearts would would be devoted to you. Let us remember and recall what it is like to invest and and, and long for the, the words that are spoken in the Bible, to long to pray to you and to talk to you and commune with you, to come and gather with the people of God, the excitement that comes with with telling people about Jesus or inviting them to hear or to teach, take them to a Bible study, Lord. We pray, Lord, that our love and devotion for you would not fade, but it would grow stronger. And Lord, that we would lead by example. Father, there's so many um, youth and children and the next generation that we can reach inside of our church, but there's also a next generation outside who need to know about Jesus who loves them and died for them. And we pray that we can be available that we can, uh, that you would give us the words to share and Lord, that we would do what you called us to do. Don't allow our light to go out as a church, but may it shine brightly all for the cause of Christ and for your glory. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.